0: So I'm just going to welcome you all to the second Edinburgh Tradfest podcast. Uh, that's me, Douglas Robertson, and, and
1: me, Jane L. Burley. Um, it's great to join you again in the, the second day of the podcast. Uh, last night we uh, managed to catch up um, with Shetland Springs. Uh, it's been streaming since the 30th of April, so we hope we watch it. It was pretty cool to check in with it again after filming it uh, back in April, wasn't it, Douglas?
0: Yes, yeah, uh, I challenge anyone not to have their feet tapping madly if they're watching it. So, uh, yeah, check it out.
1: Yeah, the, the fiddlers are actually tapping their feet so hard. We had to, to uh, pad them because they were jiggling the cameras. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um, yeah, so we're on to the second podcast. Um, Jane-Anne, maybe you'd like to tell everybody what's in it.
1: Yeah, we got a fantastic interview with uh, Aaron Jonah Lewis, uh, who's in Detroit. Um, He's talking about his uh, brand new album, Mozart of the Banjo. Very interesting stuff about uh, the origins of the banjo um, and lots of other stuff. Uh, then we've got uh, another lockdown life for you. This time it's Olivia Ross from the She. And following on from that, our first uh, of another series, which is called Moish's Fables where Pete Garnett talks about how he came to uh, join the band. Going on from there, we've got a piece about Wild Mountain Time, which many of you will remember from last year. It was all we were able to do last year was our brand new version of that with 36 musicians from the... Uh, should have been playing in the festival. And we finish up, of course, with our Sugar story from Malcolm Crosby. Hope you enjoy it. For us and probably most of our audiences, Aaron Jonah Lewis is known as a phenomenal Appalachian fiddle player. The last time we saw him was with the much-loved Corn Potato String Band when they appeared at one of our house concerts. However, last year, delighted by his new direction, we booked Aaron's solo banjo show for Edinburgh Tradfest. Having quietly honed his craft on the banjo for the past decade and more, he has now outed himself as a virtuoso player of an instrument that is often derided and the butt of countless jokes.
2: Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing great. Douglas, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. So, are you in Detroit just now? Yeah, yeah. I'm in Detroit. Um, I'm in. Uh, I'm in self isolation. Although just before we started this recording session, I got my my uh, get out of jail free card because. Well, it's a long story, but but the person it was basically a false alarm. The, Person I was in contact with got a a positive test results, which was followed by two negative test results. And basically, with all the details, it was determined that I'm not at risk of infecting anyone or or I also have a negative test result. So Um, but anyway, it's it's not too different from uh, from normal, just a different location. And uh, I got all my, you know, my instruments and books and everything. So internet still capable of participating in things <laughs> yeah That's
1: good what's the situation like generally in detroit with covid is are you under any restrictions or anything like that
2: uh, uh yeah it's weird it, it's so we w- michigan was doing really well for a, for a while with a really low case count uh and then cases starting going started going up and uh, a lot of the restrictions have been lifted restaurants and bars are open and for me that's just kind of frustrating because we're getting so close to a place where we can really be much safer than we've been all year and and yet the you know the economic interests are more powerful than uh the consideration of human lives so uh, it's we have to pretty have... much the same in every country. We've got the same thing here,
0: where on one side the economists are arguing for opening everything up, and on the other side the health, public health experts are saying, you know, don't do this, you know, be cautious, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, it's who the government yeah. listens
2: to, really.
1: So far, we're still locked down, though. So I think the medical people are winning at the moment.
2: That's good. Yeah, it's. I mean I think the the quickness and and uh fullness that uh, a country is capable of responding and and you know participating and cooperating uh is directly related to how how well they can contain the the case numbers and and you know casualties so that's it's not yeah. fun or easy but uh I think it's good um to be
1: safe sure
0: so um we were going to chat to you among other things about your um mozart of the banjo project you want to tell
2: us a little bit about that and how it came about yeah so i've been playing banjo for 20 years and uh only i guess well no maybe it was it was as recent as as long ago as 2006 i think was when i was first exposed to classic banjo um, through Curly Miller and Carol Ann Rose, who I met at Clifftop, and they, um, uh, Carol Ann came up to me and and Ben, who Ben Belcher, you remember from Corn Potato String Band and the Hot Seats, um, she she said, "I heard you play the Russian Rag," and we said, "Yeah, yeah, we do," and she said, "Well, so do we," and you know that's that's special because. Very few people play that piece. It's it's kind of unusual, and it's technical, and it's weird. So she said, you have to come over and play it with us. So we went over there, and uh, we had a great time. We played the tune, and then, of course, we played it again and again. <laughs> and uh, and Curly was playing banjo in this style that I hadn't seen before. He's playing an open back banjo with nylon strings, and he wasn't wearing finger picks. He was playing finger-picking style. Oh. And I was like, why are you... Why are you doing it that way? it's It's not as loud or as fast as bluegrass banjo, which is what I was more used to. And he said, "Oh, it's an older style. you'll you'll see when you get a little older it's it's way more interesting. <laughs> and I just kind of wrote him off at the time. I was like, this is this is not interesting. This is boring and stupid. Um, <laughs> but um years later, I think it was two thousand and thirteen. Uh, uh, Curly had passed away and his his partner Carol Ann was assembling a, a crew of people to finish the recording project that they had started while he was alive and they asked me to come in and play fiddle um, on some of the pieces that he was going to play fiddle on and I met Greg Adams who was playing banjo in Curly's place and Greg is this incredible player who also has this vast encyclopedic knowledge. He's an archivist at the Smithsonian and he's, you know, he's not technically a professor, but he could be, I mean, he's just really well-spoken, really knowledgeable and super enthusiastic and friendly. And he just converted me without even trying. I was, I was just like, tell me more about this classic banjo stuff. And he's like, Oh, well, you know, just, just open the doors. And, uh, he really encouraged me, um, when I got home, I wanted to play that piece that I had learned to play on the fiddle. I wanted to learn to play it on the banjo. So I started oh. teaching myself to do it. And man, it's, it's technical. It's, it's hard. It's, it's way more interesting than bluegrass. It just, as a listener, maybe not as exciting, like, in a kind it's not like in a race car kind of way. It's, it's just more like, um, more intricate and, uh, yeah it's more sophisticated i guess i hate to say like it's not better than bluegrass it's just different but and a lot of bluegrass is very sophisticated anyways um so greg encouraged me to come to a banjo gathering where i bought a banjo he helped me pick it out and he's like okay we're gonna get some strings on this we're gonna get a bridge on it we're gonna get you started um I'm basically giving you like all the the whole story, you know. So I <laughs> I, I got worry. into it. I got into classic banjo. It was really, um, it you can you can fall pretty deep down this well because, um, it's for one thing, not a lot of people are doing it, so you get to feel like you're pretty special because you don't find <laughs> a lot of stuff on the internet about it. You know, like yeah. that's that's one thing that's fascinating is you know people say, oh, these days everything's on the internet. Well, it's not true. A lot of, especially like traditional arts and, um, you know, just kind of historical things, you can't find it on the internet. You have to kind of know people. You have to meet people and put in some effort and show up in person and uh, develop relationships. And you uncover.
1: Is that how you started to find out about Joe Morley? Because I found it quite fascinating to find out that this person was actually English.
2: Yeah, yeah, Joe. Moore, yeah, English banjo tradition goes back over a hundred years, and you know, I learned that roughly an equal number of banjos have been manufactured in England as in the U.S. Um, oh. Just kind of a crazy statistic. Um, but yeah, as I got into it, I learned that Joe Morley was kind of like widely accepted as probably the greatest composer that everyone just loved the best. He wrote the most banjo friendly pieces that are just really exciting to play and fun to listen to and most of them are like pretty approachable um so no one else called him mozart of the banjo but that that's what i I started talking about him that way when i was doing my solo shows to just give it some perspective because he has all these things in common with mozart he he was uh he was very well loved very prolific um he was a child prodigy he was successful in his lifetime, and then by the by the time of his death, he was kind of forgotten, and he died poor and was buried in an unmarked grave. And oh. unlike, Mozart, unlike Mozart, he's uh, not too well-remembered anymore. So I, I think, you know, why not, uh, you know, do something about that? And uh, the, the name for the album came from uh, my friend Larry Nager in Hawaii. I was out there doing a festival a few years ago, talking about this project and you know larry and his wife Marsha were just so friendly and they kind of took me in and they were like this banjo stuff is so exciting and so unusual and like i was like yeah i want to make an album but i don't know how to present it or what to do and he said just do just focus on joe morley make it super specific and you can call it mozart of the banjo the joe morley project and i was like okay larry i'm gonna do that <laughs> so great. yeah yeah
0: so you're kind of hoping to put him on the map a little bit more, are you? As part of it,
2: yeah. You know, if if you're one of the few hundred people in the world who's already really excited about classic banjo music, you know who Joe Morley is, and you probably play some of his pieces. um If you're the rest of the seven or eight billion, however many it is these days, if <laughs> you've never heard of him. <laughs> so yeah. he is really famous in a very small circle, and um, I'm hoping to, you know, I. I don't have I don't. I don't I don't believe like I have such a huge reach like I'm I'm not going to play any Super Bowl halftime shows or anything like that um but I perform a lot and and a lot of the people who are like dedicated classic banjo enthusiasts a lot of them are are um not performers like as a as a livelihood um yeah so there, there's not a lot of people doing this publicly it's more of a Get together with your friends, kind of thing, and um, so yeah, I, I am trying to to share it with a wider audience because I I think I've just got infected with the enthusiasm I got from Greg Adams. It's just this stuff is amazing, and it's completely been forgotten, almost completely, except for you know a few hundred people. I I sometimes will will start a show off by by telling people like, okay, just imagine it's a hundred years from now, and all the music that's currently popular, all the hip hop, the R&B, the rock and roll, the electronic music, it's all been completely forgotten. Nobody remembers anything about it. They're all obsessed with totally other stuff that seems unconnected. But of course, there is a through line somewhere. Yeah. And then there's just a few hundred people in the world who get together, you know, once or twice a year to kind of uh, play through some Beyonce or you know, <laughs> talk <laughs> about talking yeah. about how great these things were.
1: <laughs> I, you know what I thought was also pretty interesting. So you know we've kind of heard about how you found out about Joe, but what's also interesting is how Joe came to find out about banjo music, how the banjo music came to be in England for him to know about. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: so So how he himself got got a banjo or how how the banjo came to England.
1: How the banjo came to England, I think,
2: yeah. Okay, yeah, so it goes back to the mid-19th century, the eight, 1847, it might be the year. I'm, I'm not a scholar. I'm friends yeah. with scholars, so I'm not <laughs> totally precise all the time. Um, but it was the Virginia minstrels who, uh, they were an American group uh, who performed minstrel shows. And um, at the time, the minstrel show was a pretty new form of entertainment that was basically taking the world by storm. Um, if you know, it's hard to explain what a minstrel show was in a short period of time, but it basically was a group of white men t- typically, uh, although there were also um, African Americans who who put on minstrel shows as well. Um, but in the beginning, it was mostly white men who would paint their faces black and they would perform these um, caricatures of African Americans, of enslaved people and of a, of a freed. African Americans, and they would use comedy and song and dance and outrageous costumes to kind of portray the African Americans uh, through very negative stereotypes, and and this was kind of the origin of a lot of these stereotypes that we still have to deal with today. Um, so it's uncomfortable because it was it was just patently racist and uh, propaganda. Um, but at the same time, it was like the birth of our modern popular entertainment, which we still enjoy today. Everything from vaudeville to uh, Broadway to reality TV shows and and uh, you know blockbuster Hollywood films um, can be traced pretty directly back to, to minstrel shows. Prior to minstrel shows, entertainment was at least in America was pretty dreary. It was it was like people trying to do Shakespeare or Italian opera without, mm. you know, good actors or musicians, you know, and it was yeah, just yeah, really yeah. sad. Um, so minstrel shows really rocked the, the world. Um, and they were America's first cultural export and they went to England and, you know, they visited the Royal court and they, um, they thought they'd stay for a few weeks, but they were held for months because it was such a hit, um, yeah, you know, performance after performance. And so, you know, the royals were fascinated and um, somebody even, uh, you know, one of the royal family started taking banjo lessons and and these kind of things, you know, sort of have an effect. I I think the relationship of of most people to the royal family these days may be different than it was then, but in those days, whatever they did, everyone took notice. And so the banjo became a really big deal in England. And yeah, so people started making them. People were writing banjo music, and uh, they were putting on minstrel shows as well. Um, It's kind of interesting. It's very interesting. Like, Joe Morley was a part of a lot of minstrel shows in the uh, coastal towns where people would go for holiday. And they didn't do, you know, they didn't have racism the same way that they did in the US, or that we still do. so they had these shows called like the white minstrels where they would paint their faces white and it, it took on a different, it, it went in a different direction. It's kind of fascinating.
0: There was, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, as a child, I remember there was a really dreadful weekly television program called the black and white minstrel show in the UK mm. that ran until 1978. And it was yeah <sighs> basically white guys dressed up, you know, black face, white gloves, dancing and singing with these uh, blonde white dancing girls you know and i remember reading at one point somebody said you know racism you know at the time would have frowned upon it if it'd been you know 20 black men dancing with you know these white women but white (laughs) men blacked up dancing with white women was
2: fine you know so uh yeah yeah 1978 it's hard to believe you know right it the minstrel shows in America persisted until at least till 1960 in, in the traditional format. But then, of course, you see the continuation of those themes and those um, portrayals of African Americans in uh, in all kinds of other ways that, that aren't officially minstrel shows, but in other kinds of TV shows and um, cartoons and, you know, stuff that I took in as a kid without realizing what it was, but... These yeah. things are really hard for people to let go of. I'm not trying to make any excuses or anything. It's yeah. but it, it's just very deeply embedded and it, it's kind of like uh, it's almost tied in with with what it means to be an American or or to be to, in in a western society is is to kind of you know we we get to elevate ourselves because we're stepping on someone else.
1: Yeah. Do you think that um, the minstrel shows and the kind of clowning around is the kind of origin of all the banjo jokes that we have now?
2: I do think that and I don't have a lot of evidence to support it. It just seems to me kind of obvious because the banjo was an essential part of the minstrel show. It it was completely tied in with the image of the plantation and you know it it was it was an African American invention. It was a, it's an African it's a it's the sort of new American version of an of a of a, a hybrid of African instruments, mm-hmm. and um, you know the the banjo player in the minstrel show was always kind of a fool. I mean, they they all acted as fools. Um, so yeah, I, I think it I think that persisted as well, even into early bluegrass, where if it wasn't the banjo player it would be the bass player but somebody had to kind of you know like the the guys in the band would all wear suits and cowboy hats but then one of the band members would be wearing overalls and some kind of a floppy hat and he might not have his face painted but i think in the early days maybe they did have their faces painted and you know it's it's yeah it's that same that same thing but um but yeah that that is my strong suspicion is, is you know when people make banjo player jokes that that's coming from from the minstrel shows
1: we just got a slightly wailing dog here for some reason i don't know if you can hear your old friend colin but he's in the room with us which was oh which, colin. which worked out really nicely this morning he was so <laughs> quiet but today this afternoon he's deciding he needs to sing or something like that i don't know anyway he wants
2: to hear the banjo
1: <laughs> he maybe does want to hear the banjo um, but before we do that, I'd quite like to ask you. Um, you know, obviously everyone knows you play playing the fiddle, and I think you. I, I listened to one of your interviews where you said a great thing. You said, "If the fiddle is my wife, then the banjo is my mistress." So I'm <laughs> kind of wondering how your wife's doing and if she's she's still getting some attention.
2: Yeah, you know i i play I play the fiddle. I actually started a uh, a YouTube series called "Tunes from the Bag," where I uh, so I, I wrote down. I got about three hundred of these little wooden discs and wrote tune names on them for tunes that I think I know how to play. Yep. And I put them in a bag and and on screen I'll just <laughs> pull one out randomly and play it. Whether I, you know, sometimes I mm. it's a tune I play a lot. Other times it's a tune I barely remember how to play. And it's um, that was something I was I was thinking about doing in in my sh- my live show, but uh, since I don't know when I'll be doing live shows again. Um, I'm just doing it on, on YouTube, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm playing, uh, I'm playing lots of fiddle, you know, I practice, um, various technical things for my own, uh, edification at home, uh, practice my scales and stuff. And I, and I'm teaching as well, teaching some fiddle lessons and banjo lessons. Um, I wonder if you get a lot of disappointed pipers tuning into tunes from the bag,
1: (laughs) Around,
3: yeah <laughs>
2: that's true yeah and and also as the weather's getting nicer here we can go play outside with our friends and I, I generally play more fiddle in those situations than banjo because the banjo stuff i'm doing is harder to follow along with but yeah I'm i'm doing that with people too
1: yeah. And are you still doing stuff with cheesy snacks? Because we should explain to the audience that the last time you were here, you managed to uh, uh, incite the audience here uh, to offer percussion in the s- shape of cheesy Watsits, basically. They had to crunch them at a certain point.
2: Yeah, it was epic. I, that's <laughs> definitely like one of the highest high points of my musical career is getting everyone in that room <laughs> to crunch down on the Takis. It, um yeah, that that's gonna live in my memory. I mean, I think, you know, if I if I live to to be old and die in a comfortable, I'll be I'll be remembered. That's gonna be like a deathbed memory, like things that I did that I'm really happy about. Um, but cool. yeah, no, I don't know. Uh, yeah, hijinks of of that sort are are certainly certainly welcome. I don't, I don't know what the future may hold, but yeah, but yeah. oh,
1: we. We hope it, it uh, holds a trip to Edinburgh for next year's TradFest or whenever we can uh, get you here. So, because I think lots of people are going to love this album and the show, and I think we're going to finish with a listening to a piece of from the album. And and you made me choose, and it was quite hard. Um, but I think Douglas ended up with a casting vote, and you chose
2: Walk Round.
1: Walk Round. Can you tell us about Walk Round?
2: yeah that's a that's a really cool piece. That's probably what I would have chose too because it's um okay, so a few things about that piece walk around was uh was a, a typically a um one of the opening acts of a minstrel show when the characters would would kind of parade around and and walk in a sort of exaggerated way um mm-hmm. and to sort of introduce themselves. Um, it's also interesting because that piece was uh, was not published until after Joe Morley's death. I oh. think it was published in 1992 or sometime in the 90s by the American Banjo Fraternity, which is uh, a great organization. Okay. I mean, it's a very small group, but you know, I I think of it as like Hogwarts for the banjo. <laughs> it's 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 like they're 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 hidden in plain sight. And like once you get in there, there's all this secret knowledge that they just want to share. They just want to share it with you. And they're amazing people. I'm so lucky to have met these people., um, uh, the other thing about that piece is that it didn't have a piano part. Most of the time these uh, these pieces are published with a second banjo part and or a piano accompaniment. And this one just okay. had the lead part. So I had to write a piano part myself, which, uh, Great. Phew, yeah. <laughs> well.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to hear it now. And thank you so much for uh, joining us, Rookie Podcast hosts. It's lovely to hear your voice. And uh, thanks for to... having me.
2: Yeah. I can't wait to see you in person again and come back yeah, to the wonderful soon. city come of soon.
0: Edinburgh. Yeah. Come real soon. Definitely. i well, <laughs> love to see fun. you anytime.
2: Bye. Thanks, Bye. see you. Bye.
0: So great! That was Walk Round by um, Aaron Jonah Lewis from his album Mozart of the Banjo. Really sweet little piece of music. Next up Olivia Ross from the She, telling us about her lockdown life. A piece of really unfortunate timing sort of uh, forms the the kind of start of that story, really. But uh, I'll leave it to her to tell you all that.
4: Every day. Hi, I'm Olivia Ross, and I sing and play fiddle and viola with the she. Lockdown has really been a tale of two halves for me. Apart from the four and a half years or so I spent in Newcastle on the folk degree, which was almost 20 years ago now, and I can hardly believe that. I have worked as a string instructor since 1994 for the Highland Instrumental Service. I took the decision in January 2020 to leave and go self-employed and I would teach from home and this would make it much easier when touring or recording, with also the thought that I could spend some time on my own music which wasn't really getting a chance. Life was all a bit crazy. But one week before my end work date, Uh, We went into lockdown and never in a million years did I think I'd hand in my notice to go self-employed and a global pandemic would hit. What timing! Mm. Mm. The music service was amazing and it jumped right into action immediately to provide online tuition so that pupils could carry on as normal as possible with their weekly lessons. Even though I was barely leaving the house, it felt non stop and at times pretty manic as I had also started making cakes for people, novelty cakes, eh, which take quite a bit of time to make. So, since October 2020, life has changed quite a bit. I'm making even more cakes and teaching privately, although still over Zoom. But hopefully that will change uh, very soon. This has also allowed me some time to find to play and write a bit for myself and also to spend time looking at an amazing ballad tradition again. It seems crazy to say but I never really discovered ballads until I went to Newcastle and completely fell in love with them and singing them. But working full time takes over so I'm loving delving back into these songs again, now that I have a bit more time. I can't wait to get back playing with the girls. It feels a long time now since we've played and even seen each other properly. It's been too long. I had a Saturday free in the house myself in January, um, just past, So I sat down thinking I was going to write a song about something completely different. And then I remembered something I'd written down uh, three or so years ago. I was going through treatment for cancer and during one of my chemo sessions I bumped into Mary Robertson and if you're a Brebach fan she's Ewan's mum and she truly is a remarkable woman. Um, She was volunteering at the Macmillan suite where I went each three weeks for treatment. I had known Mary for a long time, she was actually a head teacher of one of the schools that I had taught in. Anyway we were just blethering one day and she told me little steps. That's what you have to take, little steps, one at a time. And as I remembered what she had said to me, it seemed to fit fit in really well with this past year, the pandemic and the lockdown and struggling with not seeing family and friends and really missing that human contact with them. So this song came out. So this set, Little Steps. And um, we hope to see you so soon and get back to live play and I can't wait. So um, that's it. Thank you and take care, and we'll see you soon. Carry on. You don't need to be the fastest to finish the race. Little steps may take longer, but still take you to a place to where the end is. Is in sight And you cross the line Little steps One after the other Make one giant step With time Little steps One after the other Make one giant step With time
1: thanks to Olivia Ross for uh, sharing that little story and her Little Steps song is fabulous uh, we're moving on now with the first of another series that we're doing called Moishe's Fables which features one of our absolute favourite bands Moishe's Bagel telling us how they came to join the band and first up is Pete Garnett the accordion player
5: hello uh, I'm Pete Garnett the accordion player in Moishe's Bagel and uh I suppose my musical journey started at school with piano lessons classical piano lessons um, i didn't enjoy it at all and somehow managed to scrape my way up to grade six but i didn't enjoy the process i didn't enjoy the music and i stopped playing stopped playing for a few years actually and then i um i decided to try and approach music from a different direction so i got myself an old accordion started to figure out how to play it, and and trying to learn to play by ear instead, which is a bit of a family tradition, so I thought maybe that would work for me. And I started getting interested in folk music, so I went to the pubs where folk music happened, and one in particular was a place called The Hill Inn at Dale. This is down in the Yorkshire Dales where I was living at the time. And it was one of those pubs that you get a lot of cavers and climbers and motorcyclists and and a lot of folk music it was a sort of a, a crazy combination of mayhem and music but i made some good friends there and i got into a Cayley band and did that for quite a few years playing mainly scottish and irish music and then in the early 90s i moved to scotland and i went to live at a place called Lauriston hall which is a, an, an intentional community big house with about 25 people living communally And I was attracted to the lifestyle, but I was also interested in the fact that there were a lot of musicians there. And uh, there was a big interest in circle dance music. And circle dance music draws on tunes from uh, Israel, the Balkans, all sorts of strange places, interesting tunes, interesting time signatures. And there was a guy at Lauriston called John Luff who used to collect tunes and notate them. And so I gradually got into that whole area of music, which actually really suits the accordion. And then in the late 90s, I decided to try and make music a full-time career. So I started hanging out in Edinburgh, doing a bit of teaching, Cayley Bands, or whatever. And then I started getting interested in tango music. And uh, I went in a place called the Record Shack on Clark Street. And the guy there introduced me to Astor Pietzola and then a friend suggested I should give a woman called Valentina a ring because she was interested in tango so I did I went along and met her we sat and drank coffee and talked for a couple of hours about music and she said she might get a band together and was I interested so I said yeah of course and a few weeks later I got a call and she said she was fixed up at a rehearsal and would I like to come along so I went along And I walked into the room and there was Phil, Greg and Mario and uh, we started playing and um, I soon realised I was in very deep water, (laughs) musically speaking, but it was a great experience and everybody was uh, very generous, very helpful and I sort of managed to drag myself up to the level of the rest of the guys, I think. And uh, then we sort of discovered that we were interested in um, other types of music apart from tango. And so I brought along a few of the tunes I'd learnt at Lauriston. And we started playing those. And then uh, eventually that developed into the Bagels. Um, And that's pretty much it.
0: So thank you, Pete Garnett from Moishe's Bagel. Now, um, Jane-Anne's been chatting to loads and loads of musicians around the world who are involved with the Wild Mountain Time. I suppose it was a YouTube film kind of thing, and among other things, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, you know, Wild Douglas has been out back in April. I was uh, talking to some of the people that were involved in the making of our totally viral video recording of uh, the classic Scottish, maybe Irish folk song, Wild Mountain Time. Um, I ca- caught up with some of the people that uh, helped us make it. In March last year, we had everything ready for Edinburgh Tradfest. We had all our bands booked in. We had tickets on sale. Um, we were really ready to announce the lineup uh, when lockdown happened. It, it was very dispiriting after spending all that time working on, you know, we were planning to double the size of the festival from the year before. And uh, we had a fantastic international lineup. And then all of a sudden we had nothing. (laughs) So, you know, we worked very hard to kind of secure the finance and see that we could pay the musicians um, some of their money. But afterwards, I kind of started to wonder if um, there wasn't something that we could do to mark the start of what would have been Edinburgh Tradfest 2020. Um, One of my other roles is that I manage a couple of bands and one of those um, string sisters had actually just done a video that we put out right at the beginning of April 2020 which featured all 10 members of the band wherever they were in the world um, because they're quite spread out. It made me think perhaps uh, we could do something uh, for Edinburgh Tradfest. So I immediately thought what about uh, we record a brand new version of an uplifting Scottish folk song uh, and make a video with all the musicians, whoever wants to be involved. Um, Obviously that uh, was a little bit of a problem, uh, finding an uplifting folk song. So I decided to speak to an expert um, and enlisted the help of Dr. Laurie Watson from the University of Edinburgh. But I think you said something like that narrows it down to about three or something like that. (laughs)
6: Laurie Watson. (laughs) Well, I mean, we ha- we <laughs> we love wallowing about in tragedy, don't we, in, in Scots songs. I think there was the extra barrier because you had a really um, brilliantly international programme for the festival mm. and um, that also narrowed it down because some of our Scots and Scottish uh, uplifting songs are in Gaelic or Scots. Mm. And so we were looking for something that was in Scottish English mm. or English, weren't we? So that... Um, everyone could join in with it and it was really inclusive um, but wild mountain time it is it's one of those great songs that even though it i mean some might describe it as being overdone or oversung but i think that it still has more interpretation in it i think there's more there to draw out and that's obviously the sign of a really great great song um, when you can find find another meaning or another another interpretation another way of conveying it
1: With the song choice in the bag, uh, I then turned my attention to who might be mad enough to mix and produce this uh, epic. Um, Mike Vass was the obvious uh, candidate, um, as he should have been playing at Tradfest, and I'm pretty sure he'd be up for a challenge.
7: Yeah, I I thought it was going to be a big task, but I was definitely up for giving it a go, giving it my best shot. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was lovely to have something something to do.
1: With Mike on board, I then uh, gave Ruth Barry, um, an amazing video maker who lives just up the road, a call.
8: I remember, yes, that we were, I think I was surprised to be being offered any work during lockdown. It was kind of a, a delight. <laughs> and I also love a good puzzle. So the idea of editing
1: all these different
8: uh, musicians together.
1: The next step was to contact uh, all the musicians and see how many of them were up for such a crazy challenge. Um, they would need to record their own parts um, and Mike sent them out some guidelines and once they had done that, they would need to video themselves, which is also a bit of a challenge. Uh, but one thing I was quite clear on that, um, I'd seen a few lockdown videos already at that stage and they all had this very kind of closed-in uh Interior feeling, and uh, since the weather was so amazingly gorgeous uh, last April, a um, bit like it is, has been this April, but warmer, <laughs> I asked if everyone, if they could uh, shoot themselves uh, outside. We were absolutely delighted when thirty-six of the musicians said that they were up for it um, and they would. Uh, try try to record their own stuff um for many of them i think it was the first time they'd actually had to do that it's pretty commonplace a year later for people to be recording in their own houses but for some it was uh, a bit of a challenge eliza carthy
3: i think it was the first lockdown recording that i did um it wasn't in a particularly friendly key for me. I'm quite a low-voiced lady, so <laughs> I was like, I hope they don't mind me singing a harmony in the second line because I, I can't sing this. But, uh, yeah, I found a way around it. It's always been one of my favourite songs. We were big pals with the peaks when I was a kid. So, um, And it's uh, the Whitby Folk Festival, of which I am one of the patrons, um, always finishes with Wild Mountain oh, Tower as well. So didn't know that. I have... I have Very wonderful memories of singing that with the McPeaks and with the Watersons over the years.
7: It's it's a classic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, It's just a real real kind of feel-good sing-along and Scottish, maybe Irish, maybe Scottish.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We ended up with 11 singers, 12 fiddlers, um, and I think that Mike Vass ended up getting 72 tracks to work with.
7: It was so exciting having those things start pouring into my inbox and starting to line them up in the in the session on the computer and just kind of hearing the track t- take shape as as people's voices were added and instruments. Yeah, it was really fun.
1: It was a huge challenge for Mike and for Ruth, um, but they both have really fond memories of uh, working on the project.
8: Well, I quite enjoyed it, I think. But it was interesting, I think, getting the different kind of formats. Some people had filmed with their phones up and down, so it sort of took on this kind of patchwork quality and and different patterns started to emerge. There was one musician who didn't have... uh, They they just popped in somewhere in the track. Um, They were miming it. Um, there was no clap to say where it began, and somebody was making toast loudly in the background as well. <laughs> it's wandering through.
3: <laughs> I tried to rope my youngest my daughter into, um, into filming for me, into being, I've had some, (laughs) had some hilarious experiences with trying to get my kids involved in, in lockdown stuff. I don't know how the Rusby's do it. Their kids are all just, yeah, let's go for it. You know, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, mine, she was like, yeah, okay. Okay. I'll do that. I'll hold the camera. And then in about 20 seconds, she got bored, started doing cartwheels. So I had to do it. Um, yeah, I had to do it selfie style, you know, let's grow, go-go gadget arms kind of thing.
8: Particularly people like Eliza who filmed outside, that was lovely. And the colour of the broom and the green and the blues. And it was just that feeling of, of spring kind of bursting into all the shots. And then you went out, jane Ann, and you took footage on Arthur's seat. And yeah. I went down the street and got the blossom. And it, it began to have this really colourful kind of hyper-real quality. Um yeah, I was surprised uh, how it all came together and yeah, it was just a lovely moment.
1: Once we had the finished video in our hands, we prepared to uh, unleash it on the uh, unsuspecting public. Here's Christina Weber, who does our social media. We launched it as a
9: premiere, a video premiere, which is always, I think, a bit more exciting in terms of online um, video publication because you kind of know it's coming and there's, you know, there's a countdown element and um, it makes it more of an event. And I think that's something that is difficult with online programming and and with online activity is to make things like this that are done through screens um, to make them feel like an occasion as opposed to just part of your screen-based activity, which is kind of all encompassing at the moment. I'm pretty sure I remember correctly that it was a premiere, and that was something that gave online audiences something to look forward to. And obviously, as you said, the date was very was very important, and, and it was kind of in place of an event that was supposed to happen. So it was good, I think, to continue that sense of occasion in some form.
1: For want of a better expression, uh, wild Mountain time went viral. I don't think I
9: anticipated personally how immediately popular it was going to be, how immediately um, kind of jumped upon it. Was. Like It, it was um, really lovely. I remember just seeing like comments literally pouring in, you know, notifications just like pouring in. And yeah, I think that says a lot about the,
1: the need at that time to connect digitally. Here's Mike Vass
7: yeah i was keeping i was keeping an eye on it as soon as you launched it and it was amazing to see um it it was sort of racking up tens of thousands of views in the first day or two wasn't it and then into the hundreds of thousands which is astonishing really um i think everybody the everyone at home was needing something like that you know something they could something they knew something they could sing along to and it was just um your idea of having people record their videos outside you know so we got a bit of light and air and sunshine on the video. And I think that that was really, really appealing.
1: Christina Weber, I think the song choice was absolutely
9: key. Obviously that wasn't me, so I'm not taking credit for that. Um, (laughs) But I think as well as being very traditionally kind of celtic is is that the right word but uh, like having the sense of age and kind of tradition ancestry somehow in that song really appealed to a lot of people and you know there were instantly comments coming in from america canada from all across the globe um of people wanting to discuss
3: their real as you said emotional responses to that music eliza carthy in amongst all the loneliness and isolation, it was wonderful to imagine that this was gonna be a big a big crowd of people. Yeah. And then to watch and then to watch the video itself was was very, very emotional.
1: I've actually just watched the video again for the first time in several months. And it's still incredibly powerful and emotional thing to watch. I really like to thank the incredible community of musicians who uh, stepped up to the challenge. Obviously, to Mike, to Ruth, um, who put in huge amounts of work getting it together, to Christina, who put it out there on social media, um, and yeah, it was it was fabulous, and it really really filled the gap. I think we're going to hear it again now. Hope you enjoy it.
3: Oh,
1: Wait to hear that again um oh quite teary uh, finally on this episode we've got our sugar story this time it's the turn of guitarist malcolm crosby who has a, a a stern warning to impart before you listen to this
10: maybe i should uh warn the listeners that this story contains nudity
1: yeah
10: but then i suppose it doesn't really matter since it's just audio <laughs> but anyway years ago we were playing this gig uh, I can't even remember what the gig was and when I've told the story before some people have said that it was possibly in Jersey so it might well have been but anyway um, we stayed up quite late drinking after the gig in the hotel bar I think I went to bed about maybe 2 o'clock in the morning and um, after being I don't know I was a really I've never done that again <laughs> <laughs> anyway um After I'd been asleep for some time, I woke up to the sound of knocking at the door. Maybe. I got up, opened the door, and there's Angus standing there completely naked, with his hands cupped in front of his dangly bits. (laughs) And and he said, Marky, I think you could lend me a towel. So the bathroom door was just on my left-hand side in a typical hotel room sort of fashion. I opened the door, grabbed the towel, handed it to Angus, shut the door, went back to sleep. And I forgot all about it until the next morning when I was standing at the van, waiting waiting for to go back to the airport or whatever it was. And Angus comes up to me and says, "Alki, okay, see you last night. You might have given me a decent-sized towel. If that was a wee hand towel you gave me. It didn't even meet at the sides. I was oh, sorry, Angus, I didn't realise. I was half asleep. I had to go down in the lift with all the businessmen, everybody getting up to check out and he'd gone down and stood in the in the queue for the reception waiting to get a key because of course he'd locked himself out of his room having mistaken the outside door for the laboratory door so there he was standing at reception calmly waiting for his turn to get a key to go back to his room with a towel that didn't even meet at the (laughs) sides Businessman checking out Something that's happened a few times to various members of the band or similar incidents. Anyway, that was the end of that story.
2: He did did say, if I recall, he had to follow the wee Manuel type character up to the room to the guy who was going
10: to
1: let him in with the spare key. Oh, yes. And uh, he was walking up. I think, thankfully, he walked behind him, I think.
10: (laughs) Ah. (laughs) You've been,
11: wouldn't (laughs) you?
10: anyway i must have thought yeah Brilliant. quite right. traumatic experience being locked out of your room completely and utterly naked Aye. lucky you remembered you remembered you what room i was in actually that was a bit of uh,
11: <laughs> good luck. you,
10: you
1: could have kicked the door in
9: oh that's hard when you're naked have you ever tried <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you Malcolm Crosby I sympathise so much with Angus I've had that experience that he had on two separate occasions once (laughs) in uh, Ireland and another time in Glasgow a horrible feeling when the door shuts behind you and you're standing there naked in the hallway so um, yeah but um, we're going to wind this up now just really need to thank the various people who contributed to this podcast Aaron Jonah Lewis, Olivia Ross Pete Garnett and Malcolm Crosby, of course, we, we just heard.
1: And all the people that spoke to me about Wild Mountain Time, Laurie Watson, Mike Vass, Ruth Barry, Christina Weber, and Eliza Carthy. Thank you very much.
0: We hope you'll join us tomorrow where we will feature Elizabeth Russo, Transylvanian singer, and the Canaris Quintet's Day in the Life. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow. Edinburgh Trackfest podcast is produced and presented by Douglas Robertson and Jane-Anne Purdy with the help of our hugely capable engineer, Dave Kaye.
1: The theme tune, Silence of the Trams, is by Angus R. Grant, performed and arranged by Sugar Nifty. Information on all our guests and the music played is listed on our website, edinburghtradfest.com. Huge thanks to our funders, Creative Scotland and...
0: The William Grant Foundation, makers of Glenfiddich, and other wonderful things.
1: Please rate, review and subscribe to Edinburgh Tradfest Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently that helps other people find it. Thanks very much.